In this next hour, we hear from a young African-American woman who's a single mother of four children, got her Ph.D. at UW-Madison, and started and manages a nonprofit organization. Her name is Sagacious Levingston, and she was the keynote speaker at the League of Women Voters of Dane County's Lively Issues Luncheon, held on January 12, 2019, at the Capital Lakes Retirement Community in Madison. First, we hear from Mary Anglum, chair of the League's program committee, who introduces Sagacious Levingston. In the Lively Issues Forum, we assess where we are right now at this moment in our history, how we got here, and what we want for the future, and we invite a speaker who's equipped to help us think about those questions. As you know, 2018-19 saw the launch of the League's effort to put our aspirations for diversity, equity, and inclusion front and center in our values, practices, and goals. So it seemed especially important to choose a speaker who has something to tell us about those issues. I'm grateful that Madison helped to produce, although my home city of Chicago helped too, to produce such a speaker and that she agreed to address us today. This is Sagacious Livingston. She grew up in Chicago in the Bronzeville neighborhood, which is an old and at the, same, at the time dilapidated neighborhood on the near south side. She attended high school at a prestigious Northside boarding school. But obviously, someone saw her promise and did something about it. Her mother, too, had set an example of academic ambition, earning her college degree class by class. Sagacious earned a bachelor's degree from the University of Illinois, Chicago, then came to Madison about 11 years ago to start graduate school. She spent the last probably almost 11 years, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, working simultaneously toward her master's degree in African-American studies, which she earned in summer 2009, and a Ph.D. in English literature, which she achieved just a few weeks ago. So this is our new (laughs) professor. Along the way, she did what a lot of graduate students do, which is act as a teaching assistant, and what only a few graduate students do, which is to participate in the Odyssey Project, which probably a lot of you know about, and is a wonderful um, effort to make available to people who are disadvantaged, poor, or have other barriers, to find the space to get into... um, the world of thinking and the world of learning, and to find their place in that universe. And while at Odyssey, Sagacious met a lot of women who she thought would offer a wonderful opportunity for the rest of the world to see what these wonderful women have to offer. Sagacious turned her academic attention to a combination of oral history and literary portraits of disadvantaged women. Her book, Infamous Women, Um, allows 20 marginalized women to tell their own stories of abuse and failure transformed into achievement and victory. Some of you know, too, that Infamous Women was the basis of a play presented in Madison by Stroller's Theater. I sometimes think about people's vocations and how we stumble on our vocations little by little just by acting and doing, not by thinking. Um, Sagacious vocation is to open the realities of lives of poor women 
to allow them to assert their value and achievements and to compel the larger society to recognize those truths. I present to you Sagacious Livingston and welcome. Thank you all for inviting me here today. Um, I've been doing this maybe for three years and it never ever gets old. Each invitation um, has a different meaning to me, a different value. I fought really hard to get to this stage and every day I fight hard to get to whatever stage I show up at. Um, And so I never take it for granted. I always start with setting an intention because as we go on with our lives and we think about the busyness of our own lives and the busyness of the challenge that comes with our own individual lives and we think about the fight that we all had to go through just to be on whatever any level it is, it's so easy to forget about the fight that other people have to go through. And so today, I want us all just for 15, 20 seconds to set an intention and the focus or the invitation today is for you to set an intention for someone who was not invited to sit at the table. Someone that you know that when you look over your life, that person was not invited to sit at the table, whether it was economic barriers, gender barriers, class barriers, whatever it is, just setting attention for someone who was not invited to sit at the table. So why is this particular talk so special to me? At some point in my life, and I can't tell you exactly when, I started thinking that I want my work to somehow impact policy. Intuitively, I just believed that that was going to be important, even though I didn't really grow up fully understanding what it means to shape and influence policy. One of the things that I knew was that growing up, I remember my mom being in the streets and just doing grassroots organizing. I had no idea what that was. I had no idea what it was. But I understood that certain people did that work and certain people um, didn't. And we'll get to that as this talk goes on. I also want to tell you all that I don't accept a speaking engagement that doesn't challenge me. If I am invited to do something that I feel I've done before is too easy, again, I fight for everything I show up for, and so I have to figure out what is worth my fight. And when I got this invitation from the League of Women's Voters, I was thinking, yeah, this, this is going to be a challenge. Um, and the more I started getting into writing this talk and preparing for it, I started thinking about Frederick Douglass, And we often, when we think about Frederick Douglass, we think about his narrative, his slave autobiography, but I I want you all to think about something else. He wrote a piece called What to the Slave is the Meaning of the Fourth of July? And he was invited 
during a time when this country was still practicing slavery actively. He was invited to speak on the 4th of July about independence and the irony of that. So I was thinking today about the own, my own irony of standing here. And we'll get to that in a second. But I want to quote to you from Douglas. He says, the papers and the placards say that I am to deliver a 4th of July oration. This certainly sounds large and out of the common way. For it is true that I have often had the privilege to speak in this beautiful hall and to address many who now honor me with their presence. But neither their familiar faces nor the perfect gauge I think I have of this Corinthian hall seems to free me from embarrassment. The fact is, ladies and gentlemen, the distance between this platform and the slave plantation from which I escaped is considerable. And the difficulties to be overcome is getting from the latter to the former by no means slight. That I am here today is to me a matter of astonishment as well as gratitude. You will not, therefore, be surprised if in what I have to say I evince no elaborate preparation nor grace my speech with any high-sounding exordium. With little experience and with less learning, I have been able to throw my thoughts hastily and imperfectly together and trusting to your patient and generous indulgence, I will proceed to lay them before you. Now, if you know anything about Douglas, you know that when he starts off saying something like that, he is about to blow you away. Right. And I want to let you know, all. No, I don't want to set you all up for that same expectation, but I do want you all to understand that I am a little embarrassed about what I'm talking about today, because as I started to delve into, it, I realized how little I knew about the democratic process. Now, today I've been introduced to you as Sagacious Levingston, Dr. Sagacious Levingston. While I was raised in low-income housing and lived in one of the roughest areas of Chicago, I have been educated by some of the finest institutions this country has to offer. An extraordinary elementary school, Catholic elementary school on Chicago's south side, an elite private boarding high school, a Big Ten university for undergrad, and another Big Ten university for graduate school. Again, today, I was introduced as Dr. Sagacious Levingston. Yet, just as Douglas did over 160 years ago, I stand in front of my audience embarrassed because I know very little on the subject of voting. I was born a citizen of this country. My parents were born citizens, and so were their parents and their parents before them. And yet, if you were to ask me to explain the democratic process, if you were to ask me to explain to you what it means to exercise my full rights as an American citizen, I will tell you, I don't fully know. I am very vague on how a bill becomes a law, and the little I remember comes from schoolhouse rocks. (laughs) If I can be honest, I cannot explain to you how one begins to run for office. I only know the process somewhat. How does that electoral college thing work anyway? (laughs) I imagine I am not alone. About a year or two ago, I watched random Trump supporters being surveyed or interviewed about the difference between Obamacare and the Affordable Care Act. (laughs) The answers were horrifying because, as you and I both know, there is no difference. 
And yet, people were just explaining away. (laughs) I can name countless other examples like this, all of them leading to the question, what to an American citizen is the meaning of voting? We know the rhetoric. It's about freedom. It's about democracy. It's about having the right to choose, et cetera, et cetera. Yet, if you ask the average citizen about the candidates they vote for, can we really give answers that won't fall apart against the gentlest probing? I am an educated citizen, and I am completely ignorant about the democratic process, and yet I vote. There are millions of people like me, both Democratic and Republican alike, and whatever else falls in between. Should we be scared? Or is this some part of some larger plan? And I'm not interested in answering that because I'm too tired to deal with conspiracy theories I can't, not today. But I bet some of you in here, maybe just a few of you, may be a little self-righteous and maybe turn up your noses while others are in here clutching your imaginary pearls because you feel like you are among the informed. You're the good citizens. And yet there is an organization-wide push to increase diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts within illegal women voters. Somebody has figured out that voting outcomes will increase when diversity increases. But diversity does not just mean diversity in race or class. It means a diversity in understanding. I want to tell you all a really quick story, and I have a few quick stories to tell you all. I'm an English major. That's how we roll. Um, I remember sitting in a class in graduate school. And I had the first generation iPad, it was a gift. Someone had given it to me, and I had no idea what the hell it was. So you know what I used it for? I used it for a calendar. So I had this very first generation iPad, and I would just put all of my, um, schedule all of my events there. And I remember a classmate sitting next to me, and he sat down, and he was just typing away, and he had a little um, pad, little keypad, and he was just going for it. And I'm like, so... What do you use yours for? And he like named all of these things. And he says, what do you use yours for? I said, a calendar. I was, I was proud. And he was like, wow, that's an expensive calendar. <laughs> I'm telling you this story because I believe that for some of us, citizenship in this country works like that. A lot of us are walking around with full capabilities that we are unaware of. We enjoy many of the benefits of what it means to be a citizen, but yet we are also living at the expense of not knowing all that it means to be a citizen of this country. I often tell people the story about how I became a feminist, and part of becoming a feminist Part of that journey was I ran away from feminism because I was told that feminists do not wear lipstick and they do not wear bras, and I like both, so I'm like, I cannot be a feminist. Feminism was not for me. For a long time, I felt that people who encouraged us to vote or push us to engage in politics were a lot like those feminists that I imagined. They were braless and bare lips, or you could fill in any other blank that did not associate with who I see myself as. They were a particular brand of people, not like me. Some special branch of American. 
Those were the people who pushed the agenda. They were the ones who we either dismissed as fanatics or who were the smart ones who told us how to vote, where to go, what to do. Maybe I could have been one of those people's lip gloss and all, but how? Maybe I could still be one of those people, but how? You see, what I'm getting at here is that way before it's time to vote, the rest of us have to remember what it means to be citizens. We have to remember how to be citizens. Yet how do you do that when you've just been served an eviction notice or when your child has a disease that no one understands or when you are trying to live through domestic violence or when you cannot figure out how to come from under depression? How do you master the learning curve that comes with being a citizen when you are struggling with the learning curve that comes with being a human? I think part of the problem is that the two are so often seen as separate struggles. I remember in undergrad, I was taking a full load, five or six classes, and I was struggling because I was also a single mom of three. And I remember just being so determined to not give up. I just put my life out there, and I just told people, this is who I am. This is what it is. This is my struggle. I need help. And I remember two professors coming together and saying, why do we make it so difficult? Why do we act as if all of this stuff is separate when it's all actually part of the same larger system? So what they did was they coordinated all of my classes that year. And I was able to write papers that were continuations from a previous paper that I had written for the same cl- for another class all the same year. But they found a way to show- make it all work, and that changed my idea about education forever. I'm wondering if somehow that can work with voting in life. If somehow politics and life didn't seem as if only the specialists understand and everyday people who just live were somehow um, disconnected. How can we bring the two together? You're listening to Sagacious Levingston speaking at the Lively Issues Luncheon sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County on January 12, 2019. Audre Lorde said that caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it's self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare. I remember the first time I read this quote. It made me think of something else I had heard. The personal is always political. While those ideas intrigued me, it will be years before I will be able to close the gulf in my mind between the two, the gulf between the personal and the political, because everything about my training has taught me that the two are separate. So I want to give you a couple examples. As an English major, although most of my ideas came from whatever I was going through in my life, the interests I wanted to explore in my writing or my research came from things that were from my life, hence the whole infamous mother's effort. Um... I had to always write as if it wasn't me. I always had to write objectively. Um, And I wasn't objective. I somehow understood the counter-arguments, and I somehow, over time, would let the counter-arguments sway me into one way or another because I wanted to be a responsible researcher. But I had never started a paper ever in life from a place of objectivity. And yet I had to act as if I did. If you think about what that process can do to you over time, how it starts to distance you from your own thinking. I want to talk to you a little bit about the medical field. I was told that I had ADHD. 
I took the meds and I was sitting in my room. I will never forget this. And I was stuck. I couldn't move. I was drooling. I finally kind of like clawed, the, the, the me inside of me clawed my way up, found my phone, called the people who had prescribed the meds. And do you know what the doctor told me? Those can't be the symptoms because it's not in the research. <laughs> so I can't be sitting here drooling stuck because it hasn't been verified yet in the research. Um, and then I think about a mental health for years, you know, I, I am very open about, I have a standing appointment with my therapist. Uh, mental health is very important to me. And I remember always just as a black woman being careful about what I say when I go to my therapy appointments because I'm a single mom of however many kids at the time. And if you say one wrong thing and if it triggers someone's bias, then you know CPS would be at your door. So I had to be very careful about the way I navigated and negotiated my therapy. And I always went to therapy somewhat in control, somewhat very clear about the agenda, how I wanted to move forward, what I was going to share, what I was not going to share. And then one day, after two years, I crashed. I crashed because my brother had committed suicide. And when he had committed suicide, my other brother found him. And when they pulled his body down, because he had been there for so long, and this is a little graphic, and excuse me, his body had exploded from the gases and the... So I, I, I give you this example, and it's a very graphic one to tell you, I couldn't be my normal, chipper, happy, have it in control self when I went to therapy. And do you know what happened? She pulled some great book off of her shelf and said, I think you're bipolar because you function at these very high levels, and then you crashed. And I believed her, so I called my friends, and I said, I think I'm bipolar. And they said, well, okay, well, you might be, but tell me why you say this. And then I told them about the incident, and they said, well, Sagacious, I don't think you can count two years of showing up one way and then crashing when your brother commits suicide as good reason to believe that you're bipolar. But here's what I figured out. It was important for my therapist to see me as bipolar because she was a married mom of how many kids she had, and she had determined that because she was married and she had children and she wanted to live her life a certain way, she couldn't pursue a PhD. I was a single mom with however many kids I had at the time, and I didn't realize I wasn't supposed to be pursuing a PhD. And so in her mind, she had to diagnose me with something to justify why I was able to function at these high levels when she herself had determined that she couldn't. Well, why am I telling you this? Because I wonder how much, how, if, if we are not able to be the experts on our own lives, if we're trained to distance our own selves from the work that we do, how can we see ourselves? How can we trust ourselves as voters in a society when we are so distant and so unaware of our own interest. Even we are aware of them, we're not even allowed to articulate them for whatever the reasons are. And I don't mean specifically our own interest in terms of voting, I mean our own interest in terms of just basic everyday living. The more professional we become, the more distant we become from those interests. So I wanna tell you all that I, I hate public embarrassment 
So in coming here, I, I read up on the national legal women's voters, the local one. I read, looked at the TED Talks, um, the, listened to the diversity training. Um, I did all of that. And then I found myself learning that you all are a nonpartisan group. Is that for real? Are you, is that? Okay. Just wanted to be clear. <laughs> so here's the thing. That fascinated me. So what you're telling me is that there is a good possibility that a Democrat is sitting right next to a Republican right now. How does that work? So the reason why I asked that is because I'm from Chicago. And if you come here as a Chicagoan, fortunately for me, I'm not a sports person, but I learned just from walking through Pick and Save that you cannot wear bears. <laughs> I learned that, and it wasn't me. Like, I, I was in the next aisle, and I heard what happened to that person. Um, and so if we're like that about sports. I'm trying to figure out how does this work, right? Like, how does this? But here's why I say that. On the one hand, I'm being very silly, but on the other hand, I have learned that we have set up a culture that if we do something that's very basic as sports, and there's, on the one hand, we have the kind of joking, we're against each other, but on the other hand, like, people are serious, like, they want your blood, <laughs> right, about these sports. So now I'm trying to figure out, I think I see politics that way in this country. I believe, though, that the sign of a true democracy is when we are comfortably able to sit next to one another and develop and groom and empathetically listen to opposing political views. And I believe this because I honestly believe that we are still two halves of the same coin. Now, this is about to get a little uncomfortable for people, but people don't invite me to show up unless, I mean, my organization is called Infamous Mothers. Um, but I am a very committed Christian. I'm very committed to my views, but I never, I will never forget hearing someone say that they understand and they trust atheists more than they trust Christians because if you ask an atheist why an atheist doesn't believe they can tell you here's my answer if you ask a Christian why he or she does believe often the belief is coming from something that's been passed down to them but they can't give you a concrete answer hearing that was of course hurtful as a Christian but it was also helpful because I at that moment began dedicating my life to becoming clear about why I stand for what I stand for and at that moment I allowed myself to hear more views from atheists because in listening to their views, it helped me understand my views better, but it also helped me understand their views better. And so now, instead of me feeling the need to argue against someone because their views are different from mine, I invite the opportunity for discussion so that I can have clarity, but so that I can also understand and kind of suspend the things that I, that I get came from someplace outside of whatever my views are. Well, why am I telling you this? In 1851, there was a women's conference in Ohio. 
a white woman's conference. Sojourner Truth shows up, and white women are frustrated. They're scared because they feel that this gangly black woman with this rag on her head is going to lose the cause for women. When white men are saying things like, we don't believe that women should have a space or a place to vote because God, Jesus, the Savior, was a man. So John the Truth saw that these women were in trouble because they had no comeback. And she said, but hold on. Where did your God come from? Where did, where did Jesus come from? From woman and God. Man had nothing to do with that. <laughs> right? So it took a slave woman from the fields. Like, oh, y'all struggling, but I got an answer to that. <laughs> then he said, well, women can't have a place in the public sphere because they're too delicate. Because at the time, part of being a woman, according to the cult of true womanhood, was that you had to be not only virtuous, but you had to be domestic. And Sojourner Truth says, well, I'm out in the fields and I can outwork any man. Ain't I a woman? So at that moment, she had kind of helped the women win. Um, they, they gained a victory because this outsider came in. So then now, to you, the question may be, what's the guess is, what does 1851 have to do with today? What does this discussion about the atheists and the Christian have to do with today? And what I'm going to tell you all is... We have this thing going on called Me Too. Then we have Surviving R. Kelly that came out, right? Let me tell y'all, they ain't just R. Kelly people got to survive. There's a lot of folks out here surviving people, but that's another talk. <laughs> I grew up in a household where my dad had three women, two black women and one white woman, and they all lived together in the same house. And my dad was the only one that benefited from that arrangement, and I remember growing up as a little girl watching the division between the women and how they would fight each other. No one would ever say anything to my dad. And I look at this the way we do politics like that. I look at the division that we have between each other, women um, versus women, Democrats versus Republicans. And I look at the ways in which, because wait, and let me back up, you all were the ones that said you were nonpartisan is why. I feel comfortable having this conversation with you. I look at the ways in which because we don't talk to each other across party lines a lot of times, across racial lines, across class lines, how we ultimately find ourselves voting against our own interests and we don't even know it. So I want to say to you all that I hope that as you all sit next to each other, you all are like me and the atheists who, in spite of our differences, find ways to have conversation, empathetic conversation, to sharpen our positions, but to also understand what's happening on the other side. I hope that somehow, as we do this work, we put forth the effort to understand that at the end of the day, whether you're Democrat or Republican, we are still two sides of the same coin. And I hope that Somewhere along the lines, as we do this work to move forward in this country together, we think about all the ways in which 
the price of citizenship becomes very expensive if we don't understand what it means to exercise our full rights. The last thing I want to say to you all is, how much are you willing to give up who you are or your position in society to help groom and raise the rest of society? You're listening to Sagacious Levingston speaking at the Lively Issues Luncheon sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County on January 12, 2019. So here's what I mean by that. I think about the ways in which we, as we move forward, and as we try to, as we think about collaborating, what are we willing to give up? So the irony of this, the way this whole political system works is we work really hard to maintain whatever our party lines are. Yet, what does it benefit us? How does it benefit us to maintain the status quo? More importantly, though, what's at stake when we challenge the status quo? And here's what I mean by that. I have never seen on the south side of Chicago, as segregated as it is, a white woman knock on my door to canvas or to help me get a politician in office. I have never seen someone whose background doesn't look like mine help me figure out how to understand As a matter of fact, I don't think I've seen anybody when I was on the south side of Chicago help me understand anything about politics outside of the fifth and eighth grade. And yet, when I became of age, I voted every time. Well, why is that particularly important? It's important because part of me wonders who benefits when I don't know any better? Who benefits when I show up and I just told the party line and I don't ask any questions? Who benefits when I don't even know how to put a candidate in office whose interests are more reflective of mine? And who's interested in showing me something different? And what will it cost you if you show me how to put someone in office whose interests might not be consistent with your interests, but they may speak to what it needs for me to survive? I'm not asking you to vote the way that I'm voting, but how does, who benefits when I don't know any better, and who's willing to stop what they're doing to teach me how to know better, even if it doesn't work in your best interest? Because, and here's the real takeaway. If we honestly and truly believe in a democratic process, then at the end of the day, at the end of the day, whoever's in office, if the process is what we say it is, even if we may not agree with them, somehow it still should be reflective of American values, right? So we're still part of the same country is my point. We're still part of the same household. Unless we all know something that we're not willing to talk about. And then, and then maybe that's the thing that we have to address. But my point is, my only point is, you all brought in front of you all today who's not a political scientist. You brought in front of you someone today who votes every time it's time to vote, but someone who is very aware of my own limitations. And my question to you all is if you all, the one, you all are the league, and I see very few people in the league who look like me. 
So who's going to go out into the community and bring in more people, even if it doesn't benefit you? And if you're not going to do it, why? What does it cost you and what's at stake? Thank you all. Thank you. Hello, my name is Teresa, and thank you, doctor. I am a guest, so my colleague um, invited me today, and my new friend, who is also a woman in the League of Women Voters, and my one friend of color who is here, Ernestine, where are you? Uh, yes. So, um, so uh, Sagacious, I would like for you, if you could, to answer the question, how do women who are in this room, who have now been tasked and charged with um, diversity, inclusion, and equity, which is um, a challenge that the Downtown Rotary of Madison Club is taking up as well. Um, how can you leave, or what can you leave the women in this room to help them build a bridge towards that for people of color that we don't see very many of in this room? So you all, I'm going to be honest. Uh, how many of you all in here are mothers? All right, so if I use the word sex, you won't be like... <gasps> Okay, all right, all right. So growing up, I saw Tupperware parties, right? I saw my aunt used to sell Tupperware. And then at some point, my cousin threw a sex toy party, right? But why am I bringing that up? I'm bringing that up because I've noticed that people find reasons to come together about Tupperware, and they come together about things as private as sex toys, yet we have not found a way to come together about something that is as public as citizenship in a private space. Here's what I mean by that. I've seen it happen before. I saw it happen a couple of years ago. I think her name was Latanya Johnson. It's Latanya Johnson from Milwaukee. Someone invited her here from Planned Parenthood, and she organized a party in her home for everyone to get to know Latanya Johnson. And people learned her story, and people went out canvassing on her behalf, and people voted for her, and she made it into office. That was the, I was in my 30s. That was the first time I'd ever seen it. I didn't grow up in a community where people um, had potlucks and talked about politics and where they brought people from other races and other classes to talk about voting interest for women or people of color or for whatever it is that we vote for. And when I wrote the infamous mother's book, I knew, back up, there was a woman who was a colleague of mine, and she passed away recently, but I learned so much from her. She had these things called salons. And I looked up the word salon, and it's the most influential women, I think, um, or artists in the community get together to talk about issues. And I said, you know, I wanted to have salons around the infamous mother's book because when I became the opening speaker for the Women's March, I learned that black women weren't showing up. I didn't know that when I was invited. Um, and then I learned that black women felt that white women for years, um, although the interests were similar in terms of being women, it was also different because of the race issue. And that was the first time when I was in my 30s I had learned that. And so I it was too late for me to figure out how to bridge the gap at the, at the Women's March, but I knew that when we wrote the Infamous Mother's book, I wanted to have salons around the city 
where people will be, where diverse people come together to talk about issues that they will be uncomfortable to talk about in public. But why am I bringing that up? I wonder if we can have a citywide, um, citywide salons around the issue of politics and voting and class and difference. And I wonder if we can have these discussions in the private because we understand that the personal is always political, right? We understand this. So how do we start having discussions where we intentionally in small spaces bring together people with the understanding that if enough of us do it, at some point that puddle will create, those little drops will create a big puddle. And then when it's time to vote again, not only will we show out in larger numbers, but we will show out more informed, right? If, if conversations around politics became part of our, if it became as normal as the nightly news or this is us or anything else, um, I think that's the way to go if we started with something, if, if we started with salons, salons, whatever, whatever the salon we want to call it. So I'm, I was talking about the infamous mother salons, but what if we call it, have different types of salons around what does it mean to be informed citizens? So that's a long answer, but you don't know when you're going to see me again, so I want to be thorough, right? <laughs> All right. Well, uh, the history of the League, we get, used to get together in small groups called units, and those units were essentially salons, of the, of, uh, and a lot of the women were, had small children at home and weren't out in the, in the world, and it was a way to get some brainy conversation and, and do exactly that, but... Amongst ourselves, not amongst yes, other that's people. what I mean. Amongst others, there was a question over here. I think that sounds great. Um, I wonder if it needs some larger organization in order to start something like that. Like maybe we could talk to the public libraries, for example, um, so that there's kind of a place where everybody will feel okay going, and you never know who you're going to meet, and that would be great. So on the one hand, yes, I agree with that. But kind of like what just happened over here. Every white person has that one black friend that they love saying, I have a black friend, right? Invite that one <laughs> black friend and then ask that friend to invite her one Latina friend, right? And then they invite their one Asian friend, right? Because everybody always have one. And it starts on a very personal level, right? And then once it starts there, and, then, and so all of you all will be charged with that responsibility, Right. And then once you once we go there, then we can go public. And you and and I say that because if you build it in the house first, when you go public, it will be a more natural and organic process, I think. And I've just learned that from just running my own business. Two things. Yes. Please consider joining the League of Women Voters <laughs> of Dane County. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And you said that the price of citizenship is very high, yes. which I like the sound of that, but I'm not certain I know what you mean by that. You know, when I wrote that, it sounded good, and I thought through it, because I'm like, somebody's going to ask me. <laughs> but I got an answer for you. Um, I think a lot of times, if you don't understand how to... When, so I give you just this very basic American example. Whenever someone comes into office, they bring their own cabinet. Right. So they bring their own people. I think a lot of times at the very grassroots level, we don't know how to identify, cultivate and bring up our own people. And it costs us. Right. It costs us a lot. We go people get into office and we vote along party lines. But you have to keep in mind that before that final, those final candidates make it to the big ballot, there were all these smaller things that happened. 
who determines and who picks those initial people? If you understood the process a little bit better, then maybe you would have say so about that initial pick so that when the final choices are being made, the, the choice is more representative of you. And the problem with that not being the case in a lot of instances is now you're living life as a citizen in this country, but it's the difference between going into a store and getting something that fits you perfectly or customized or something that was made with you in mind versus just getting whatever the store has created and they never imagined you in that process, right? So I think a lot of times we vote for people that never imagined us because they were never the people that we chose and that makes living in this country expensive in a lot of ways because we are dealing with the consequences of showing up in a space that didn't imagine us. So I give you a very basic, basic example, and I think everybody can relate to this. I flat out told the University of Wisconsin-Madison when I applied who I was, the first line of my personal statement was books, bullets, and babies. I juggle all three, right? You knew who I was, line one. I spent a lot of years at the university, and I realized at some point that they didn't anticipate me. Here's what I mean by that. Yes, I did get a fellowship to write my dissertation, but I got a fellowship at the same rate as my counterparts who had no children. Not only did I have my fellowship was the same amount, I wasn't allowed to get a job. So the university, on the one hand, I got the benefits of being here, but I also dealt with the expense of people not imagining someone who's a single mom of six might show up and become a doctor one day. Right? That, that was expensive for me. I struggled. I'm still dealing with the trauma of that. What helped me was because I assumed that something was wrong with me instead of thinking that the system hadn't anticipated me. Right? And so something as simple as I couldn't, whereas people could apply for rent assistance help. Because I didn't live in the right area, I lived in a Shorewood area, but I lived in Eagle Heights. So when, when people who were in public housing or low income could apply for certain benefits, I, even though I, I fit the criteria financially, I lived in the wrong neighborhood. And so I couldn't get those benefits. So that meant that I was stuck in a world that neither, in two worlds that neither fully recognized me as an individual. That's an expensive way to live. I'm a past president, uh, served two years. I just want to invite you to become a member. Thank you. And to uh, join us. This group has a meeting monthly that the public is invited to right in this space. And so, you know, we can work toward what you're talking about to get that diversity, to build that diversity in the the framework that we have established in our community, yours and mine, as well as the League of Women Voters, without having to reinvent anything. The League of Women Voters does partner with the NAACP, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority, and it would be helpful if you and I can help to forge the the bridge, build that bridge, and we really, really embrace the voting process. We did really great last uh, the midterm and getting people to vote. I really love the way you talked about voting because that's what's happening with a lot of us. Yes. And 
working with the league. I've learned a lot and can share that with others. And I really, really hope you would consider you. Uh, working closer with the league. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. I do want to respond to that. I realize that is time. It's definitely time because I knew that uh, when I was writing, when I was writing the talk, I don't believe in showing, I can't show up as someone other than who I am and I can't show up talking about something I don't know anything about. Um, so I had to talk to you about what I did know and in, in learning what I didn't know, I realized that um, I have to be a more responsible citizen. And, and I think this starts, it starts here for me. So thank you for that. At lunch today, we were talking about responses to people who choose not to vote except in the big elections like mm -hmm. presidential years. And I talked about saying to people, you know, the local election is where the people who actually have a lot to do with your day-to-day -day life, for example, whether to enforce loitering laws and, and how to deal with low-income housing and a lot of that sort of stuff comes. But several of us were talking about trying to convince people to look beyond marquee elections. And mm -hmm. I was wondering if you had mm -hmm. any suggestions in that regard. So the salon is one thing. The, but the other thing I was thinking about, I was thinking exactly along the lines you're talking about is, a lot of times we think, I don't mean we as in the people who kind of do this, like people who are in organizations, people who are politicians, but the average citizen, we think voting starts when it's time to vote in voting season. But I think if we started understanding and having the conversations, everyday conversations around the things that make a difference, that directly impact our lives, then voting actually starts then. So what I mean by that is sports. We know this is a big sports place. Um, voting is like the game when you show up for the game. Um, but those other conversations are kind of like the practice. If we're not strong at practice, we're not going to be strong at the game. So I have been really thinking about how do we start having those conversations and make them normal parts of our everyday lives. So here's what this woman, I was in Dallas recently, and I was watching television. And you know, yoga's all meditative and you're relaxing, but this woman designed some type of yoga where you're twerking in yoga, <laughs> right? Um, and what she was saying, I was like, this is different. Because um, I'm not a big twerker. Um, so I didn't know how this was going to work out for me. Um, but what I appreciated about that is her conversation. She said that a lot of times the fitness industry is very, very, is not diverse. And so one of the ways that she's trying to diversify it is to bring in more cultural specific activities with the more traditional activities, right? And I'm wondering, how can we bring in more cultural specific activities with the more specific mainstream activities? Mainstream is, there's nothing more mainstream than voting. Um, everyone should be doing it. Um, so how do we make, how do we talk about voting over macaroni? How do we talk about it over, I always say we, when I went to that, that fancy boarding school, 
I noticed that those fancy people, they didn't talk, they didn't gossip about such and such a sweet potato pie. They were talking about the moves that folks made at the office that day. People talked about work. It was a very normal environment. So by the time the students became, it was time for them to go to college, they knew about internships. They knew about stuff I didn't know anything about. So how do we make those things that people do that's normal in some households, normal in other households in terms of conversations around um, what it means to be a citizen? And I think we have to specifically... It changes from community to community, culture to culture, class to class, but we have to intentionally design um, activities and conversations and events that make citizenship, conversations around citizenship and everyday conversation um, before voting actually happens, if that makes sense. And I can't tell you how to do that because it's specific. It has to be according to who you have to do the research before you design the activities and the events. Does that make sense? But as a, as a, um, as a league member, I'll help figure it out. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> I think you had your One last question, anybody? I really appreciated your um, reminding us all that we're nonpartisan because our uh, an- candidates' answers... Um, didn't look that way this year, did it? And that wasn't, I don't think, any doing on our part, but we were, uh, candidates chose not to submit their answers. Um, and so um, I think that's really important, and I see your idea about the salons and those small groups where hopefully there would be uh, even different ideas and different uh, political uh, positions as a way to break through um, what the larger political groups don't seem to be able to do. So thanks for that. Thank you. But can I quickly respond to what you said? I think so if, you, if we just imagine that for a moment, it's, I know it's going to be difficult, but if you imagine if we get different four or five or six people in a room, different races, different classes, and we set ground rules for discussion, you can't cuss people out. You can't walk away from the table when it's just because it's difficult um, or you have to plan to come back. Um, what would that do for us in those small groups and how would that make us stronger as a larger collective, right? It's the hardest thing, but we're all part of the, and I hate to be all like come by y'all and all, but seriously, we all, we, it's almost like having, I have six children. If, if my children can't sit at the table and have a conversation, we can't have a functional family, right? So how can we have a functional country if we can't even sit next to people in the, who, who they're, we're on opposite sides of the fence in terms of our voting, but we're still part of the same country? Um, and I think this becomes a microcosm of that. So maybe we can figure out how to be a model for the rest of, let's start small, the state, um, <laughs> or the city, um, then maybe we can do something that people um, have forgotten to do. So thank you. Thank you very, very much. You've taught us a lot. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Sagacious Levingston, the keynote speaker at the League of Women Voters of Dane County's Lively Issues Luncheon, held on January 12, 2019 at the Capital Lakes Retirement Community in Madison. 
To find out what else the league is up to, go to their website at lwvdanecounty.org. The views expressed here are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the League of Women Voters of Dane County. Permission to rebroadcast this podcast is granted. If credit is given to the League of Women Voters of Dane County and any editing does not alter the speaker's meaning.